0: I had a naming party. I'm a pretty good brand person, and I know a good name when I hear one. And I assembled my friends to brainstorm with me and colleagues that were gonna be joining the business. And we had dinner and it was the holidays and I had baked my apple pie and they hadn't come up with a name. In fact, we were laughing at most of the names they came up with. They were kind of absurd, funny. And I brought the apple pie out and three people said, that's the name. And we were right
1: hello everyone and welcome to fintech leaders a weekly podcast where we learn from today's global leaders in fintech business and beyond coming to you from new york city i'm your host miguel Armasa. if you enjoyed this conversation i encourage you to share it, subscribe, and please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows so more people can learn from it. In this episode, I sit down with Denise Thomas, CEO and co-founder of Apple Pie Capital, a company that offers franchise financing, enabling franchisees to efficiently obtain financing to start or expand their franchise business while also enabling investors to earn fixed income returns. Launched in 2015, Apple Pie Capital partners with 60 franchise brands and has facilitated the funding of over $1.25 billion in franchise loans. They've also raised capital from QED, Fifth Third Capital, Story Ventures and more. In this episode, we discuss the history of franchising and the main differences between running and financing an independent business versus running a franchise. Why your company strategy should always match your possibilities. How Apple Pie has learned to partner with strong franchise brands and their franchisees and leverage this relationship to reduce customer acquisition costs. Learnings from some of the most significant challenges Apple Pie has faced over the last several years and a lot more. Hope you enjoy this chat with Denise from Apple Pie. All right, Denise Thomas, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Miguel? I am great. Happy to be chatting. Excited to learn about you, about Apple Pie Capital. Where are you joining us from today? I am joining you from across
0: the Golden Gate Bridge in a town called Tiburon, California.
1: Oh, I I know. I've been there. That's an amazing place. I'm sure it's much nicer than New York City today. We're getting about 20 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, (laughs) sorry to hear that. (laughs) So tell us about your story and then maybe we'd love to hear about how your past experiences have led you to co-found and lead Apple Pie Capital today? Sure. Well, it's a
0: pretty straightforward story in some respects. I've always innovated in business models that have a supply and demand dynamic. And that's always a bit of a chicken and egg business model. And it's a lot harder than starting a business with a product or service because you have two sides that you're serving. And in this case, you know, how do you get a franchise brand to send you their franchisees to borrow money if you never lent a dime? And how do you get investors to invest if you don't have the customer or the track record? So that's the chicken and egg I was facing in building Apple Pie Capital. For me, these are challenging and very fun types of problems to solve because they invoke the most creativity and require you to have great influence and trust on the parties that are going to take those first steps with you. I've also specialized in business models that are built through channel partners and minimal brand advertising, minimal advertising period. So you get a low cost or no cost of acquisition. I like those much better than competing on a commodity basis for my customers. And I've done that multiple times. So it feels like an old glove, which is, I think, a different set of, I guess, skills and experience. But the last pillar that led me here is one of bringing order and simplicity to what is otherwise a complex process or experience. So creating order out of chaos. And my nickname is the anti-tornado, so it suits me well. And while I was at another fintech, I became exposed to Prosper and Lending Club years ago when I began to study this notion of non-bank lending. And I began to ask, why has no one done this in small business? And I looked around. I only found MCA lenders at that time. And I then began to ask myself, well, how could we focus on such a vast market, small businesses across the country without an organizing principle and enough consistency to deliver a loan cost effectively? Because you need standardization. And I had a very small exposure to franchise in my life through family members who owned them. And I invested in Supercuts 25 years ago. And that has paid off. I get dividend checks every February (laughs) from my partnership. And that's been going on for 25 years. So it led me to, there are standardization qualities to that sector. There are blueprints for a business to pop up. So that was why when I found out the market was huge and underserved and had complexity It was very exciting to me because I thought these are the entrepreneurs in our country that are making a huge difference, and they work way harder than Silicon Valley entrepreneurs. And I say that with respect because I am a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, but I do feel that franchise owners have to do so much more in a solo fashion than most entrepreneurs who are backed by venture money or
1: other money. So it's a fascinating vertical that... I haven't encountered any other fintech kind of tackling. How long since you started the company?
0: I uh, started the company in 2014, and we made our first loan, and it was July of 14. We made our first loan in January of 15.
1: Okay, so let's talk a bit about franchises. I think, personally, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, I have became familiar through the franchising business through food Right. Fast food chains. I mean, McDonald's comes to mind, of course, and the founder movie, which I thought was amazing. That illustrates a little bit of, of the beginning of the franchising business and boom in the US. But maybe take us through the history of franchising and how is it that the initial entrepreneurs were financing, right? We're getting access to, to become franchisees.
0: Well, there have historically and even currently been a number of areas where financing comes from. But in the early days, the most common situation was people buying a job and transitioning from a corporate office environment to owning and working their own franchise business. You saw a lot of that. We still see that, especially, you know, right now you've seen the layoffs that have happened in the country. That's actually good for franchise because it brings in more people to own businesses and they'll take their savings and they'll use that with the leverage of their assets, and they'll go purchase a license to own a franchise. That's very common. And while there are segments where this is still true, the vast majority of the brands that we work with are set up with a multi-unit owner in mind. They want fewer owners to manage and train, and that's good for them. That's a lower cost to the franchise brand to have Fewer franchisees owning more units. Now, there's a point at which they don't want them to own too many units because they get more control and influence. And there is a corporate entity that's sitting as a partner to all of these small units out there, which is one of the reasons that this sector is uncorrelated with other small business in lending. It is unique. You have the brain power of a corporate entity helping you navigate different waters that happen the pandemic, great example. Many areas of franchise improved during these times and got better. So, you know, it's extremely important to the U.S. economy. It drives 3% of the GDP. One in 12 working Americans are in this sector. I mean, that's a huge thing to say because, you know, it's a big country. And so when you look at really the sources of funding today are still the same, but they're in different usage. So you've got friends and family, you've got your own savings, people even leverage their IRA funds, and they do IRA structures where they can use that money to actually get into a business. Banks will do small business administration loans, so SBA lending is very common in franchise. But a conventional product to a brand that has not reached sort of the Jimmy John's or the McDonald's level is not going to get money from a bank on a conventional basis easily because that brand isn't mature enough and they don't necessarily want to spend the time analyzing them. So there's limited bank financing conventionally for under $5 million in loan size. And that's where we sit. We sit between 100000 hundred thousand and five million, and $5 although we don't like doing the really super small ones today. But it is an opportunity for faster growth So the franchise brand wants those multi-unit operators to get these up and running. SBA limits you. Our product does not. Last year, our product was chosen eight and a half out of 10 times over SBA, and we offer SBA as a referral partner to banks. So we will do an SBA loan packaging, but that is only for brands and borrowers that might not qualify for our product or for other reasons need to take that route.
1: So at the end of the day, a business is a business, right? Some of the fundamentals are universal, but I'm sure there's a lot of nuance here. Can you take us through some of the main differences between running a successful franchise versus a, a successful, just independent business?
0: Well, number one, you get trained out of the gate in how to build and create demand in your area. It's demographically studied using some very sophisticated methods that the franchise brand outforces to demographic firms that study the United States and really understands where you're going to be successful with foot traffic. So you don't get that as a small business owner. It's a lot harder. You see a spot, you thought there was a pizza place there that did well. Well, You decide to go in there you don't know anything. You're hoping that your business will perform as well as that one did, but you really don't know. So site selection is huge and that you're getting direction from the franchise brand. The second thing is, how do you know you're going to be good at doing this? You know, people have these ideals about opening a business of their own, and then they get in there and they say, I hate sitting here from nine to five. You know, they don't understand. In franchise, you get to really experience and talk to other business owners before you buy a license. That's a very common process that they go through. They also know and what to look for in an operator and who's going to do well and who isn't in their particular business model. People call me and say, what biz- what's franchise should I try to buy? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> what do you like to do? You know, if you like to do something in a trade area like haircutting, maybe you should own a hair salon if you like just running, you know, a real estate rental process for other people to come in and haircut in your location that's a whole different model. So you have to make decisions based on what you love to do and the brand will make sure you are one of their people. The third leg of the stool is to have the unit economics that the brand has come up with actually vet out in your territory. So if they say you're going to make a million dollars a year gross, and you don't, then there's something wrong either with your marketing, and they'll help you with that. So they're going to help you all along the way with any problem that you run into. It's almost like you're bored on a private company basis if you had one. But a small business doesn't have a board. They have their friends and family. They have their community. You know, in franchise, you've got so much more.
1: So going back to the early days of apple pie Well, first of all, I mean, great name, but where does it come from? Why specifically apple pie?
0: I had a naming party. I'm a pretty good brand person and I know a good name when I hear one. And I assembled my friends to brainstorm with me and colleagues that were going to be joining the business. And we had dinner and it was the holidays and I had baked my apple pie and they hadn't come up with a name. In fact, we were laughing at most of the names they came up with. They were kind of absurd, funny. And I brought the apple pie out and three people, said, that's the name. And (laughs) we were right.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's amazing. And so you just described kind of like your core product, but did you nail it from the very beginning as to what was going to be your core product?
0: We nailed one aspect of it, but it evolved tremendously when I got franchise, knowledgeable lending resources into the business. In 17, I bought a company that was in franchise for 20 years in doing SBA referrals and conventional referrals to banks. And that really turbocharged us and gave us another product. But the first product, the main thing that stands today that was always the most important thing was financing a new unit where banks would not finance them. It was financing new units. If you don't finance a new unit, you're never going to get a brand relationship because they don't make any royalties on trades or resales, or refinances, or recapitalization, and we do all of that too, they don't make money on that. They wanna talk to you if you will fund a new unit. And that's how you open the door. It's a wedge product. And you get your foot in, and that's when you get the flow, and you expand your product, you expand your credit, you figure out how to do these things over time to see where the friction points are and where it really matters. We have a 1.12% loss rate in eight years. We know how to pick them, and we know how to navigate this space and produce a high-quality asset. And you get that both through learning. In our earlier vintages, they were quite small. We did have more loss, but that was really the brand selection model. And we refined it, and it never repeated again.
1: So sounds like you, you have multiple parties that you're dealing with. You have, I guess, a couple of clients, right? You have the franchise and the owners of the units, right? How do you view this, this two different relationships? And is there ever a tension between the two and for you to manage both of those?
0: Not so much tension, but what I would say is that there's a strong relationship between the franchisor and the franchisee. They're an interdependent relationship. Good brands know how to take care of their franchisees. We treat that as a business development path in our business. So it's a one-to-many situation. You're only going to have one business developer for probably 25 to 30 brands. We have 60 partner brands. You don't need a big staff, but you need someone who has relationships in the channel to open those doors. And that's what we created when we hired people into those roles. The owners themselves come as a result of the brands referring them to us. So that relationship is symbiotic. We have leverage with the brand when something goes wrong. We're allowed by our loan documents to talk to them about a struggling business unit, and we will ask them for help. So there's a lot of relationship that happens in circlebacks to the brand. You know, during the pandemic, we spoke to our brands probably weekly, and we helped them, you know, get a strategy and to get, you know, help. We also gave them relief, you know, on their loan with us. So there was a lot of conversation. We also led At the government level, we had constituents through the Association of Franchise speaking on behalf of Franchise during the pandemic for the SBA rules. So we represented the industry there and made sure that our people were represented in the law that was being developed.
1: Would you say COVID has been the biggest challenge to your business, or have there been other significant challenges that that you can recall now?
0: You know, the pandemic was hard on people just because we had to work 16-hour days straight for 45 days to produce these loans with a team that, you know, it was like an assembly line. So that was hard psychologically on everyone. It wasn't hard in the sense that we didn't lose a business like most small businesses in the country at 30% fallout rate, you know, that closed during that time. We did not. So that felt like a victory. You know, in terms of Other challenges, what's always been a challenge for most alternative lenders in fintech is matching supply and demand, having enough money at the time you have the demand, ratcheting your demand to match your capital. That's always the tension that's in the business.
1: Tell us a bit about your team and, you know, maybe some a little bit about your leadership style.
0: Well, I have to use other people's words for me because I never like asserting my own, but You know, I have certain values, and I think the values are what drive a company when you're a founder. You put those values in place, you bring them alive, you work with your people, and you exhibit those values every day. And if you don't, then you will get what you behave. (laughs) And so in mine, I would say vision, being a visionary, collaborative, principled, and generous are really my four that I most often hear back from others. Vision, because it's what inspires me and others. Collaboration, because I hate the alternatives and I found this works best with the highest quality talent. I wouldn't want to work with anybody who wasn't collaborative. So why should they? Principle because it feels right. And my experience of others is that if you don't consistently stand for things, it confuses people and makes it difficult to trust them with your future. Generous, because if you take the most and don't reward others generously, you lose in the end. And I could not live with myself if I wasn't.
1: Yeah, a lot of entrepreneurs, their leadership styles and skills have been tested over the last, especially the last three years in the pandemic. When you look at, you know, what's going on today, where capital availability has dried up significantly. And in your conversations with other entrepreneurs, what are some of those concerns that come up? And you know, for entrepreneurs listening, what would you advise them?
0: Well, your strategy always has to change if the circumstances have changed. And whereas I didn't have to raise money for two years out of eight, and I've had to raise money all other six years, that was a luxury. And boom, you have this talk of recession and the banks roll up and go dark and wait on the sidelines because deposits are leaving their bank. Well, you need to go research and find out what's going on and make sure that your strategy matches the possibility of solving that problem. And then in a time like this, it's much more of pounding the street, whereas before it would have been a little bit more selective and strategic. I think you have to just do the numbers game in a market like this. And if you're not up for that and you're more up for just the casual referrals that you got and it was coming to you, then you're not going to survive as well if you can't turn on that particular skill set at that time. So it's important to be fluid. And if you can't do it, get someone who can. You know, skills have to change and you have to mostly change the strategy and match the person to the strategy.
1: I'm curious, Denise. So a lot of what we read of layoffs today, it relates to the tech sector and you know, there's been other sectors, but it's been mainly white-collar jobs, if we're going to call it that way. Your customers, I'm guessing, they're not tech-related. They're in the real economy. What are some of the top industries that you see amongst your portfolio?
0: Well, you know, we have a wide spectrum of personal services. So you might see fitness gyms, you would see personal care, even some of the beauty sides of things, like we have a brand called Amazing Lash, where women can get their lashes done or tanning salons, you know, you name it. We have a large amount of haircut businesses that are really more we work real estate business models. They're not hire a bunch of people to cut hair. They are give people who cut hair and have a book of business a room. And so those are really interesting models. They're high margin, very attractive for people who don't want to be hands on. You can go from that all the way to American Family Care, which is an urgent care center. And those businesses have done extremely well in the face of all that's happened. We have another brand that is an adventure park for young people to go on different exhibits the size of a Macy's department store. It's huge. Only high net worth people can actually buy those because they're very expensive to build out and the brand wants you to buy multiple of them. So it's very across the board. Now, quick service restaurant represents 24% of the industry. And these are takeout and delivery and small sit-down area restaurants. We don't do the large sit-down restaurants, but that's a very big growth area. And it's doing extremely well right now. It's countercyclical because as economy issues come up, people downgrade their eating. They don't go to the sit-down restaurant as often. They come into a quick-service restaurant. So you see that type of behavior and we can study that through time with franchise. So those are some examples. I can give you more, but that probably gives you a few for the audience.
1: And it sounds like you are not seeing meaningful signs of economic weakness amongst your client base.
0: Well, where they've had challenges started in the pandemic You know, the labor shortage became a big issue for everybody, and they did things like automate certain things so that they didn't rely on the human capital as much during the pandemic. They figured that out. Also, supply chain. They look at difficulties in supply chain, and the brand gets involved and says, well, why don't I do a master agreement to buy all this stuff so that I can get leverage for my franchisees? So there's a lot of give and take in this industry to figure it out. That doesn't mean they haven't had and suffered some margin effect with inflation over the years, but it hasn't broken their businesses. And I think that's the key. It's not a breaker. They can always make an adjustment here or there to get their EBITDA back to where it should be, you know, reduce their menu. So they're not really having to have as many people prepare or as many ingredients to have. I mean, there's lots of different levers that they can use.
1: And when you think of where the whole franchising world is going and is moving for the audience, doesn't know much about it. How do you see the segment of the economy evolving?
0: Well, franchise is ever evolving, which is one of the satisfying parts about it. It never gets boring. There's always something new to learn. I still learn every day in this business. But there are new brands that emerge. You know, you've seen health trends There's a lot more healthy food businesses today than there were 10 years ago, and others fall away. You know, some things are tried and they don't stick. But if you have some slow but steady growth, and that's how franchises begin, they begin in a local area. They might get to 10 units in a local, you know, a local area or state, and then they'll expand across to a neighboring state. So they're very mindful of slow, steady growth. You know, technology is game changing. And that was, you know, part of the COVID success story for many brands. Overnight, you know, change in delivery models, launching, you know, the keypads where you don't have to actually talk to a human to order, you know, all of these different things are being put in place. And, you know, the app scheduling, all kinds of digital solutions are making these businesses even more profitable. So then, all comes back to unit economics you know, the better the unit economics, the better the franchise will do. And so I expect it to continue growing. It's grown every year for decades. You know, it's just responsible
1: growth with the circumstances that it faces. I don't know why, but in my mind, franchising is a very American phenomenon. It's now, I know that it's international, but, you know, it's certainly very strong. Here you mentioned it's even 3% of GDP. Have you ever considered expanding internationally and or maybe taking the business model elsewhere? Maybe you can franchise apple pie.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I've actually been approached about that, ironically, but the ingredients have to be that someone has to be in country that knows the regulatory environment for the money side of money flow. It has to be a large enough market for someone to invest and to get backing and not all markets are. So you take Canada as the logical extension, but it's an oligopoly on the banks. And then you still have problems. I mean, franchisees need things over there, but it's too small a market for us to pursue. There are bigger markets where you could blueprint apple pie, but you have to have a capital raising function in-country, and you have to have a franchise association, minimally, with access points and an ability with knowledge and experience in that space. You've got to put your supply-demand people on the map that are also entrepreneurs. And so finding that is kind of rare. But yes, we have thought about that. We have so much to do in the U.S. still. You know, we've only scratched the surface with $2 billion lent to date.
1: Fair enough. Well, Denise, I want to thank you for joining. I, I know it's a busy weekend, but I appreciate you taking the time and educating us about This whole world that is quite massive and important for the economy. So thanks again.
0: You're most welcome. I hope people enjoyed it. Thank you for having me so much, Miguel.
1: Thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Denise Thomas, CEO of Apple Pie Capital. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows because it truly truly helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, please just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.